Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. sermon series in the book of Colossians. We're kind of at a bit of an inflection point in Paul's letter today because uh, this section that we'll look at is really the conclusion to Paul's extended introduction to the letter and sets up what is to come in the following weeks as we close out this letter over the next couple of months. And just to set the stage a bit, if you were with us two weeks ago, You may remember that Paul opened his letter, as he often does, expressing thanks and offering prayers for the Colossian church. He said that he's thankful to God for the faith of the Christians in Colossae and for their love for one another, all of which, he said, was grounded in the hope of the gospel. And then if you were with us last week, we looked at one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. And uh, if you missed that sermon, I'd highly encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 from last week is this beautiful hymn or poem that exalts Jesus as the preeminent divine son of God who created all things, who sustains all things, and is who is redeeming and restoring all things. And then following that hymn, Paul reminded the Colossians that this son of God, the sovereign creator of the universe who has authority over all things, uh, was born into our broken world lived a messy human life, and died a brutal death for them in order to reconcile them to God and restore all that is broken in the world. The verses that we looked at last week in Colossians 1 contain some of the most densely packed theological truth anywhere in all of Scripture. Jeff said that you could basically preach any doctrine of the Christian faith from just those few verses last week. And then the rest of the letter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, which is where our our sermon passage for next week will start, gets really practical. Paul starts to combat these false ideas that are floating around Colossae. He talks about thoughts and behaviors that, as Christians, we ought to put to death and avoid in life, as well as those things that we ought to put on and embody in life. He's going to encourage us as the church about how to relate to one another, and he gives guidance for familial and for work relationships. Like many of Paul's letters, Colossians begins with brilliant, lofty theology and then moves into practical, boots-on-the-ground guidance for how to live it out. And our passage this morning is kind of an in-between. In the structure of the letter, it's kind of the bridge between the lofty theology of chapter 1 and the practical guidance of chapter 2 and beyond. So last week, Paul told us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then next week, he'll tell us, therefore, as you receive this Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and established and built up in him in the faith. And so how do we get from one to the other? How do we get from the theological truth that Jesus is Lord over all in chapter 1 
to the experience of being rooted and built up in Jesus in chapter 2. And that's some of what our passage for this morning is about. It's about moving from knowledge about Jesus to being rooted and established in Jesus. Think about just for a minute this metaphor that Paul uses about becoming rooted and established and what it takes to plant and grow a tree to the point where it is rooted and established. If, if you want to do this in your own yard, if you want to plant a tree, you have to decide where this tree is going to go. You have to decide which kind of tree you want. So you do a little research online, and then eventually you have to go to a nursery and pick out a tree. And by the time you pick out a tree, someone else has done years and years of work to grow this tree from just a seed into something that you could take home and plant in your yard. And so you go, you look at these trees, you pick out a tree, but you can't stop there because if you, if you did, no matter how good this tree might look in your yard, you aren't going to experience the beauty of this tree unless you bring it home and plant it in your yard. Choosing the tree is only part of the process. And then even as you bring the tree home and you, you get it in the right spot, you're starting to see this picture come to fruition that you had in your mind, but you still can't stop there. Because if you did, the tree might look good for a while, but then eventually it would wither or it would freeze and it would die. You have to actually plant it in the ground so that it can get established. You have to prepare the ground, plant the tree, and even then you're not done. You have to water the tree and care for the tree and continue to do so until it gets established. If you've planted a tree, you know that seeing a tree grow to the to a point of being rooted and built up is an ongoing process. To grow a beautiful tree in your yard, you can't just read about trees. You actually have to go get the tree for yourself, bring it home, prepare the soil, water it, give it support, trim it, and continue to care for it. Or at least pay somebody else to do all of those things for you. Growing a tree to the point where it is established and has deep roots is this laborious process. And this is the metaphor that Paul uses to talk about the spiritual life in Colossians 2.6. He speaks of the process of establishing deep roots in Christ. And that verse is Jeff's for next week, but what I'm interested in this morning is how we get from the grand theological statements about Christ that Paul makes in chapter 1 to the deep established roots in Christ that we see in chapter 2. So here's what we'll see this morning. It is objectively true that Jesus is the preeminent Son of God who created all things, who sustains all things, and who is over all things, which is what we looked at last week. But it's not enough for you and for me for that to remain objective truth somewhere out there. The objective truth about Jesus must also be practically worked out in real life. In other words, it's not enough just to mentally assent to the idea that Jesus is first overall. The reality that Jesus is first overall needs to be established and worked out in our lives. It's not enough just to like the idea of Jesus as the preeminent one. As Paul describes in Colossians, we need to take these theological truths and learn to live them out in our daily lives. We want theological truth to become part of our everyday lived experience. In Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5, our, our bridge passage, if you will, this morning, I think gives us a bit of an overview of what this process might look like. And the invitation for us in this passage, and as we continue to move into the rest of the letter 
to the Colossians is not to be content with just a tip of the hat to Jesus or with abstract knowledge about the gospel or with coming to church and hearing sermons, but to connect what we know to be true about Jesus with our everyday, daily lives. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, there's often a disconnect between these two things. So this is an important lesson for us, and we'll get into it this morning. Um, I'll start reading in Colossians 1, verse 24, and we'll go all the way through chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So before we get into how we make theological truth part of our lived experience, I think this passage gives us a couple of clear uh, reasons why we should want to bring theological truth into our lived experience in the first place. The first is, did you hear all of the process language in this section? Paul says things like filling up what is lacking making the word of God fully known, growing towards maturity, toiling, struggling, working, being knit together, reaching knowledge and understanding, remaining firm. All of these words and phrases here in this section imply process, change, growth, not something static or stagnant. And then this section spills over into verse 6 for next week where we get the, the agricultural metaphor of establishing roots and the physiological metaphor of walking, both of which are are vital processes in our world. In these verses for this morning, we get Paul describing his life and his ministry and his desire for the Colossian church. And the picture that we get here on just an overview is one of growth. It's moving forward. It's putting down roots. And so the first reason I think we see here for why theological truth needs to become part of our lived experience is because faith is a process. But what that means is that trusting Jesus for salvation is not the end of the Christian life. It's actually the beginning of the Christian life. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's anything left for us to do for our sins to be forgiven and to experience salvation. We already saw back in verse 22, we'll see it again later in chapter 2, that Christ's work on the cross and trusting Christ's work on the cross by faith is all that's required for us to be reconciled to God. But Paul didn't end Colossians 
after the hymn in chapter 1 and the gospel announcement that he gave. He still has three more chapters to go about how all of this truth works itself out in real life. For Paul, salvation is by grace through faith alone, and trusting Jesus is the only is all that's required for salvation, absolutely. But for Paul, there's also this need to work out our salvation into our lives, as he says elsewhere in Philippians. I think one of the dangers for us living in a city where the message of the gospel is so common is that we might become so used to the gospel message that we just think, oh yeah, I already have that. And our knowledge of the gospel might not work itself out in our lives, having little effect on our work or our parenting or our hobbies or our daily life. But like I said, Paul didn't end Colossians after verse 23. He's interested in this process of faith, how theological truth intersects our moment-by-moment reality. Another significant theme in this section that I think illustrates why we want this to be true is when Paul talks about this stewardship that he's been given. In verse 25, Paul tells the Colossians that he became a minister to the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. Paul seems to want the Colossians to know here that he didn't choose this role for his life. He wasn't watching Christianity grow in the first century and then decided, oh, I want to be a part of that. If you know Paul's story, he was persecuting the church. He was trying to end Christianity. He was overseeing the stoning of Christians in the first century. But Jesus radically appeared to Paul and and reoriented his life, and Paul went from persecuting Christ to proclaiming Christ all around the Mediterranean world. And so Paul wants to make it clear here that his life, who he is and what he's doing, is totally and completely from God. It's a stewardship. And in some ways, Paul is unique. None of us have a commission from God to take the gospel around the first century Mediterranean world and write half of the New Testament. However, this idea of stewarding the life that God gave him is not unique to Paul. We know from the theology of the hymn back in chapter 1 that every single person in this room this morning has been created by God and placed in a specific city, generation, and family with specific gifts and abilities to bring glory to God. As Jeff said last week, we were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And we know that all of us have rejected God and and, uh, the God that's created us in one way or another, gone our own way, but God did not leave us or forsake us. He gave himself for us and invited us back to life with him. And so in other words, this means that everything good we have in life has been given to us by God, and our proper response is to steward it. We see this elsewhere in Scripture in 1 Peter 4. Peter talks about being a good steward of the gifts God has given us. And Jesus himself used several parables that had to do with stewardship to illustrate some of this. And so that's the second reason we see in this passage for why we should want theological truth to become part of our lived experiences. Because life is a gift from God and our response is to steward it. Our life, our family, our job, our homes, our money, our abilities, even the fact that we know about Jesus and the hope of the gospel, which so many people in our world don't know about, all these things are gifts from God, which means our only response ought to be to steward them well. Just like Paul, each of us has been given a stewardship from God. And if we see these things in our lives, our families, our career, our money, our abilities as things that we've earned, we've built, we deserve, 
then what God has to say about them doesn't really matter much. And there wouldn't really be a good reason to care about theological truth in everyday life. But if we see these things in our lives as gifts from God to be stewarded for his glory, then it matters a great deal what God has to say about them. It matters how we integrate God's truth into every area of our lives. So what I hope you see from this so far is that integrating theological truth into our daily lives is not just for professional theologians or some kind of super Christian. This is for all of us. Because all that we are and all that we have is a gift from God to be stewarded. So it matters what God has to say about each area of our lives. And faith is a process, like Jeff, Jeff likes to say, of Christianity, we're all about trusting Jesus and going to heaven when you die. Then when we baptize you, we just hold you underwater and send you to heaven as quickly as possible. But that's not what we do. We come back up with new life, and we learn to live all of life in response to who God is and what he's revealed to us in his work. So how do we do that? Well, there's no way we could comprehensively cover that in the next 20 minutes or so that we have left. But I think we do get a a couple of starting places, a couple of signposts from this passage that help us get started. So first, as Paul continues in this section, he's fleshing out the nature of stewardship more fully in verses 25 and 26. And he goes on to say that his stewardship was to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, which has now been revealed. When Paul uses this word mystery, we shouldn't think of an unsolved crime from a Dateline episode or a murder mystery movie or something like that. This word has an Old Testament background to it that referred to the way in which God's will was partially hidden or obscured, but now Paul is saying this mystery has been revealed. Paul, or God's will has been clearly revealed in the world. What Paul's talking about here is that he has come to understand that God chose to reveal his plan for the world in bits and pieces to Israel in, in what we call the Old Testament. There's hints, there's foreshadowing, there's prophecies about the coming Son of God and the way in which God will act in his creation, but it's not clear or obvious what God is going to do. The Jews always believed that God would return and act decisively in history once again, like he had done previously in events like the Exodus, to redeem and restore his people, but the details about how that might work itself out were always a mystery. And so Paul says now that he's been giving this stewardship from God to announce to the world that this mystery has been revealed. This decisive action to restore and redeem all things has been taken. And remarkably, what Paul says is that God has made this mystery known not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. We just take it for granted that what God did in Jesus would be for everyone, but this was a mind-blowing reality for Paul. So much so that Paul talks about it with language like the riches of the glory of this mystery. Part of the mystery of God's past revelation to Israel was was hints that he was going to bless the whole world one day. There's passages like Zechariah 2.11, which says, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. But nobody had seen this come to fruition yet, and they really had no idea how this might actually happen. Happen. And we can't really blame them because if worship centered around a temple in Jerusalem and if dietary laws and animal sacrifices were the things that 
marked out someone as a child of God, which was true of Israel, then how would the whole world be able to participate in something like that? There would never be enough room in Jerusalem for everyone in the world to come celebrate the festivals. The Romans would never be willing to give up eating pork and to start sacrificing animals to the God of Israel. The Jews were confused about how this might work, that God would bless the whole world. It was a mystery. But now, Paul says, the mystery has been revealed. The decisive act in history has taken place. God's ultimate purposes for his creation have been made plain, and everything that Paul expected about this day was flipped on its head. The temple won't have to be the center of worship because the temple was merely a symbol that revealed God's desire to dwell with his people, and its goal was to point forward to the day in which God himself would literally dwell with his people as a human being named Jesus. Animal sacrifices won't have to be a component of worship anymore because they were merely a symbol that revealed the holiness of God, the sinfulness of human beings, and the need for atonement for sin. And their goal was to point forward to the day in which God himself would be the sacrifice for sin. And so for Paul, the mystery that has been revealed is not what he expected. It's not that Israel would finally overthrow Rome and experience a new season of peace and blessing. It's that God has overthrown sin and death and is restoring and remaking the entire creation and that every single person, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status, is invited in on it. And then the way that Paul ends this long, run-on sentence is really powerful. Because he says, this mystery, this Jesus, the riches of the glory of this mystery, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember what Paul's already told us about Christ in this letter. He's the image of God. He created all things. He has authority over all things. He sustains the universe at this very moment, and if he stopped doing so, it would fall apart. And now Paul says, This Christ is in you. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around what Paul's talking about here, but this is a doctrine of the Christian faith called union with Christ. We see it all over the New Testament. Just a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. And so, goes both ways. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. There's so much that we could say about our union with Christ, but in essence, this doctrine teaches us that if you are a follower of Jesus, your life is so wrapped up with him that there is a very real sense in which right now you are in Christ and Christ is in you. In other words, at the heart of this mystery that Paul's talking about is that the God of the universe no longer dwells in a temple in Jerusalem. He dwells inside people from every nation, tongue, and tribe all across the world, across time and space. It's really mind-blowing stuff, and it's why later in our passage in in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that he has a desire for the Colossians to reach towards all the riches of understanding and knowledge of this mystery. There's a sense in which we will never comprehend, never unpack everything there is to know about the gospel or this mystery of Christ in us. But even if we can't fully grasp it or understand it, it's true that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, Christ is in you at this moment 
in every moment of your life. And here's why that matters for what we're talking about today. Because learning to live into this reality, learning what it takes to live moment by moment, to day by day experience this union with Christ as a reality is foundational for theological truth becoming part of our lived experience. You might remember that some of the context for Paul writing this letter is that uh, some uh, in the church, the Colossian church, had come to believe in Jesus, but there were also a lot of other attractive ideologies in town that they were latching onto. We don't know the details about all of these, but we know that the Christians in the city had taken, were tempted to take what they know about Jesus and add some of what the other philosophers or religious leaders in the city had to say. And so some of what I think Paul is saying here is, you have the creator of the universe in you. That's your hope of glory. He's your understanding and knowledge. You don't need to latch on to this idea from philosophy over here. You don't need to participate in this spiritual ritual over here. You have everything you need because the one who created everything and has authority over everything and sustains everything right this very moment is in you. And although our context is very different from first century Colossae, we can find ourselves in a similar situation. We believe in Jesus. We know he's done some good things for us. But when it comes to actually living our lives moment by moment, it's so easy to look elsewhere for help or for hope. Or we're too hurried or distracted to even slow down and be conscious enough of God and his presence in us. But as followers of Jesus, this means that we have access to the one who created all things and who possesses infinite power and wisdom at all times. Commenting on this reality, N.T. Wright says, This is both a comfort and a challenge to Christians. They do not need to look for wisdom or knowledge elsewhere than to the one they already possess. But at the same time, they have a long way to go if they are to explore and make their own the rich inheritance they have entered into. What this means for us is that Jesus isn't just with us when we pray or when we gather for worship on Sundays. Christ is in you at work whether it's fulfilling or difficult. Christ is in you at home during peaceful, joyful moments and during toddler temper tantrums, which is like an hourly thing at our house right now. Christ is in you when you share a fun meal with family or friends or go for a walk or a bike ride or watch football. It means that God's word, God's truth has something to say about our vocation, our family, the things we do for fun. I think we're all tempted to just leave Jesus for church or when we really need him and look elsewhere when it comes to ordinary life. But Paul warns us against that. He warns against being deluded with plausible arguments because Jesus is what we need. That doesn't mean there's not wisdom in books or podcasts or family or friends because there is. But what it does mean is that what our parenting needs, what our financing needs, what everything else, anything else in our life needs is not another life hack. It's Christ. The comfort for those of us who are following and trusting in Jesus is that we already have him. The challenge is for us to be aware enough of this reality and to bring this truth into our daily lives. How we do that is a sermon series. Learning to do that takes a lifetime of walking with Jesus. But what I want us to see this morning is that Christ in us has incredible practical implications for everyday life. 
And there's a disconnect between our theology and our experience. If we don't go through our days conscious of the fact that our hope is that Christ is in us. Another way that we bridge this gap between knowledge and experience is by growing in Christ with a community. Skip down to the beginning of chapter 2 for just a minute, and then we'll come back up. Here in chapter 2, Paul mentions suffering and his struggle, and then he says that his hope for the church is that they would be knit together in love in order that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so again, we see this theme of needing to be constantly learning and growing in our faith. Paul says all wisdom, all knowledge is in Christ, but it's hidden. We have to seek it out. We don't just automatically download it into our lives. We need to connect what we already know about God with our daily lives, and we actually need to learn more about God and his word and his truth. And do you see the connection in these verses between community on one hand and growing in understanding the riches of the gospel on the other hand. What Paul wants for the Christians in Colossae is to understand everything they have in Jesus and to live lives that reflect this understanding. But in this section, he includes this desire for that coming to fruition would include being knit together in love. And these two things, Christian community and spiritual growth, are unmistakably linked in this passage and really all over the New Testament. Paul's vision for spiritual growth and seeing these things become a reality in our lives seems to be a communal vision. He sees a direct connection between doing life with other Christians, participating in a loving community with other followers of Jesus, and growing in our faith. My wife Maddie and I have experienced this reality firsthand in our own lives. When we moved to North Carolina so that I could go to seminary in 2016, we were newlyweds, we were right out of college, and neither one of us had really been deeply connected to a church during our college years. And so when we moved to North Carolina, we wanted to fully jump in to a church for the first time as adults and for the first time together. And so after we visited a few churches, we picked one and we jumped in all the way, including getting connected to a small group and finding a place to serve and attending as as often as we could on Sundays. And both of us grew personally and spiritually, more in those four years than any other period in our lives. And there were a lot of factors for that, but I think we would both agree that one of the primary catalysts for that growth was our investment in our church community. And that doesn't mean that I can point to a particular sermon on a particular Sunday or a specific small group night as things that were transformative for our lives. It was simply the regular participation in the life of the church that slowly but surely grew our faith in ways that we had never known before. It was the regular preaching and regular worship, the regular sharing of life and discussing God's word and encouragement that came from small group. It was the regular serving. And we've continued to see that growth as we've participated in the life of this church after moving back to Oklahoma. And now I don't want to set false expectations for community. Community is hard. People will let you down. Growth is slow. This isn't an automatic, I put in community, I get out a ton of growth. But I think if there is a gap between the truth that we know and actually living our lives daily as a follower of Jesus, one thing for us to consider is, are we fully invested in a Christian community? Are we regularly gathering to worship God with other followers of Jesus and hear 
Scripture preached and take communion? Are we, reg- are we committed to a smaller group of people where we can be honest with each other about life's ups and downs and take the truth of God's word and apply it to our daily lives? Are we using our gifts to build up the church and serve the body and advance God's mission in the world? For Paul, there's this unmistakable direct relationship between growing in understanding and knowledge of all the riches of Christ and also being knit together in love with other Christians. This is the way God created us, and it's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about this as a church, why you hear us all the time inviting you into small groups and into surfing. All right, let's go back up to um, verse 28 in chapter 1, and we'll move quickly on these last two points. Coming off of Paul's statement about Christ in you in verse 27, um, then Paul says, Him we proclaim, meaning Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So in short, Paul's message was Jesus. And his goal was that people would trust Jesus for salvation and grow to maturity in Christ. Paul was going up against attractive philosophies and religious ideas in Colossae, but he didn't try and change his message or make it sound better or more exciting. Paul simply preached Jesus. And this isn't just for Paul. Paul says, we proclaim Jesus. And so I think a third way to connect theological truth with our lived experience is actually as we invite others into the life that we've found in Christ. Because we talk about what we're passionate about, don't we? If you listen to our uh, Wide Awake podcast this time last year, you would have heard Chris or Audra or I talk about baking sourdough basically every episode of the podcast. And why do we do that? Because we were all baking sourdough for the first time, and we were really excited about it. And the inverse is true as well. The more I talked with people about baking sourdough, the more passionate and excited I became about the actual baking of the bread. And so one reason our knowledge about Jesus can remain abstract and disconnected from real life is simply because we don't talk to others about Jesus and about what he's doing in our life. So as we learn to walk in union with Christ, as we grow in community, we ought to also become excited and passionate about our faith and invite others into the life we found. And then at the same time, as we talk about Jesus and how he impacts everything we are and everything we do, our faith grows and we become more excited and passionate. Just like community and growth are connected, so talking with, about Jesus with others and growth are connected as well. And then last thing, we'll we'll close. You notice all of the the hardship and struggle and toil language in this section. Uh, Paul says he's suffering, verse 24. He's toiling, verse 29. He's struggling, chapter 2, verse 1. The Christian life isn't easy. Paul also makes this strange and confusing statement back at the beginning of the section when he says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And this is a little confusing, but what Paul's not saying is that something was lacking in Christ's afflictions when it comes to our atonement and our salvation. That would clearly contradict statements that Paul makes elsewhere in Colossians and in his other letters. Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient for our salvation. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't the end of suffering. There's still more suffering to take place. Jesus will, will return and finally wipe out suffering, but on the cross and resurrection, he didn't fully wipe out suffering yet. There's still suffering in life. Life is still 
hard. In fact, elsewhere, Paul says that Christians should expect suffering because Jesus is our model and Jesus suffered. And so even though Paul here is literally writing the book on how to connect wonderful theological truth to everyday life, his life is not perfect. His life is still hard. And that's good news for us because our lives are hard too. Yep, Paul rejoices anyway. And how does he do that? Well, in verse 29, Paul says that he toils, he struggles with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's God's strength that sustains Paul. So how do we take what we know to be true about Jesus and connect it with our daily lives? Not by our strength. We don't do it by trying harder. We do it by recognizing our dependence on God and transferring the weight of every area of our lives onto him. We rely on the power of Christ. When we try to live life in our own strength, we just end up angry, anxious, frustrated, tired. There's never enough time in the day to accomplish everything we want to accomplish. There's never enough money in the bank account to buy everything we want to buy. There's never enough peace in our homes or our relationships to be as comfortable as we want to be. And this is why I hope that you'll see this invitation to take theological truth and work it out in our everyday lives, not as something that's burdensome or inconvenient, but as something that's actually freeing and life-giving. Because the way of Jesus offers hope for our anger, anxiety, frustration, and weariness. Because we were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Jesus, as Augustine famously said. If what the Bible tells us about God and ourselves and our world is true, then it's not a set of legalistic rules. It's a map to the best life that there is. Everything we search for in work or food or kids or sex or travel or hobbies is ours in the riches of the glorious mystery of Christ. If you've been around church a while, then you know this. We know this is true. We see it as we read scripture and hear sermons, but too often it stays a truth that we think about sometimes instead of the reality that we live moment by moment. But when theological truth gets connected with everyday life, we step into the life that is really life because we get our direction and we get our strength from the one who created all things, has authority over all things, and who sustains all things. Well, as we continue our series in Colossians, we're going to get very, very practical about how we actually go about doing this and how we connect theological truth with family and work and things like these. But let me just give you one quick way to apply this teaching as you go about your week this week. When things are falling apart, whether it's a kid melting down, an issue at work, or, or whatever else it is, try to pause, slow down. Remember that Christ, the one that you were created by and created for, is in you. Say a short prayer, maybe help me, Jesus. Remember that your hope is not in your kids or your work or anything else. It's in Christ who has authority over all things. And then return to the situation. During a particularly life-giving moment this week, maybe a meal with family or friends or enjoying a hobby, try to pause, slow down. Remember that Christ, the one you were created by and for, is in you. Say a short prayer, maybe thank you, Jesus. 
And remember that the good thing that you're enjoying now is only a foretaste of the glory to come when you'll see Jesus face to face. And then continue to enjoy the moment. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have clearly revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for our salvation and our restoration to you. Father, I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to continue to grow and to learn more and more each day about the riches of the mystery, which is Christ. By your spirit, help us connect that which we know about you and your word and Jesus and the gospel to every area of our lives, our parenting, to our work, to each area. Father, help us grow in community. Help us honor you. Help us remember every moment, day by day, that we're created by you. Help us live.